This is Pat Carey, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues. from a um, Maple Blues rehearsal. Yes. We're about five days before the actual Maple Blues show. Tell me what's involved in the rehearsal and how, how much goes into the rehearsal. Uh, basically, we usually rehearse anywhere from 15 to 18 hours in advance. Okay. Because we're dealing with uh, how big is the band? Drums, bass, keyboards, 11, guitar, and three horns, plus Al Learman who plays harmonica, horn, and acoustic guitar. So yeah, so that's eight of us right there. Then, uh, so with the band itself, we have to rehearse instrumentals for the show. Right. But we also have to re- rehearse all the stings whenever uh, somebody is brought up to the stage or whenever somebody's announced as a winner, we play a sting and bring them on and off the stage. This is all charted? Yes. For okay. the horns, it's all charted. Right. I do all the arrangements for the horns. <clears throat> but uh, rhythm session, they basically learn everything, learn the tunes, and then that's why we rehearse. If it was all charted, including them, it would probably be a little bit faster. <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling me they can't read? No, it's just... <laughs> uh, just a couple of them, but you know, they, they write their own charts. Um, okay, and then you also perform with some of the players. Yeah, nor- uh, normally whoever is a guest on the show, we normally do back them up. Right. And this year, the way it's turned out, we always have five guests. And as it turns out, the horns are only playing with three of the guests this year. And then three of the guests are actually just going to play with the rhythm section. Right. Oh, well, one of the guests being Harry Manx and Steve Mariner, they do an acoustic right. duo. So they're, they're going to be by themselves or maybe with Gary. But yeah. And then they think, oh, thank God I get to get off the stage for a little while. <laughs> a couple minutes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not much, is it? You're no. up there all the time. Last year was every guest used the horn section and... We played on every sting, so we were up there for the whole show. So, no breaks last year. This year will be a couple of breaks. Now, I know you're a professional of a certain standard. Um, is there any stress involved in this? No, it's just uh, the time to find to do everything. Right. That's always the stressful part. But, you know, once once the show is all, before we ever get to the stage of the show, everything's rehearsed to the point that yeah. we're not concerned about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the stings that are played in between each award or when people are walking up and whatever, um, are they different every year? Yeah, uh, Gary Kendall, who's the band leader, Gary, he picks all the stings and he's really good at making sure every year that we're doing different kind of stuff. Right. You know, there, there's the odd one that'll, you know, get yeah. used a couple times in a row, but yeah, he's really good at trying to bring in fresh stuff all the time. Wow. So are you excited? Do you get excited about these things? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, rehearsing is never exciting, but <laughs> the day of the show is always exciting. Right. Sure. And you've won a number of these. Yeah, personally, I won uh, Horn Player of the Year seven times. That's crazy. In ten years, something like that. And with Downshall Blues Band, of course, we won multiple Maple right. Blues Awards. Okay, so if you've won seven times, mm-hmm. do you get upset if you don't win? No. <laughs> No. Because you've pretty well proven yourself at this point. Yeah. Well, you know, my my feeling on the Maple Blues Awards was when that first came into being, it really did start more as your peers saying you've done a good job. Right. You know, and for it was sure. a really a camaraderie thing. And, you know, here's for all your hard work. Right. It's kind of morphed into more of that as we're going into, I believe, year 21. Mm-hmm. 
of the Maple Blues Awards. So it's become more national and a little bit uh, definitely larger for sure and coast to coast. Right. But they also changed uh, for all the individual artist awards. They used to be voted on by the public. Right. And about 10 years ago, they stopped doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's just a jury now picks nominees and then they pick the winner. Right. Right. So that's a big change. Um, I'm talking to Pat Carey of the Downchild Blues Band, the Maple Blues Band, and Jazz Navigators, and tons of other bands. You play with, God, so many different bands. Yes. <laughs> um, but I guess that's what you have to do. Yeah, to, to be able to make a living, for yeah. sure. You really have to be adaptable and play lots, a lot of different styles of music. So tell me about how music began for you. Let me, actually, let me ask you about you, you growing up in northern Manitoba mm-hmm. in the Paw. The Paw. The Paw. The Paw. Tell me about the Paw. How far north are we talking about and how big of a town is it? Uh, the Paw, before they built the new highway, <laughs> the Paw used to be an eight-hour drive north of Winnipeg. Okay. And it's north of the 53rd parallel. So we're sitting here on one of the coldest days in, in, in Toronto, but this is probably... Yes, yeah, this is a, a totally norm, normal day in the park. <laughs> from uh, probably from November till the end of March, it's like this. And what what is how did the park become a town? What is it? What's it known for? Uh, pulp and paper. Okay. Yeah. And is it still going strong? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. The pulp yeah. and paper. Yeah. And uh, uh, the Saskatchewan River goes through the park, and on one side of the park is the town, and the other side is the reserve. So there's a big uh, native reserve there as well. Oh, neat. Okay. So what was it like growing up there? Good years. I mean, I was there only up until the age of 10. Mm-hmm. And then we moved further north. After that, we moved to Thompson, Manitoba, where I went to high school and started playing music. That was all up there. But, but uh, yeah, the Paw was, it was, you know, a nice small town. Schools were good. Had a cottage at the lake, beautiful crystal clear lakes, beautiful place. You know, so a good place to grow up for sure. Can I ask you what your parents did that made you? My father was a doctor. Okay. Yeah, and uh, he used to do general practice in the pub, but then he also started. He used to do all the physicals for all the miners that used to go up to Thompson, Manitoba, because the Inco mine was in Thompson. Right. So in those days, there was no road to go to Thompson, so they had to take the train from the pub. So all the physicals would be done in the pub. Wow. Okay. Then they get on the train and go up to Thompson. And uh, my mom was a housewife, but both my parents played piano. My dad played piano and organ and drums and violin. My mom played piano, so but he, there was always music around. Hey, that's the first instrument you started with, right? It was the <coughs> piano. Yeah, I started on piano at the age of six, I think, and I ended up getting my grade six Royal Conservatory on piano. At that point, did you have a passion for music, or what, what did music represent to you? I, when I was in the PA, it was, you know, being, we left there when I was 10 years old. So those years, I just really remember uh, when, in that day and time period, when people partied, there was always music right. and everybody played. You know, it was, there was no computers and TV was bare like two channels and right. it just started, right? So every party, there was music and everybody played, everybody sang. Can you give always, me an example of what kind of music you were playing? Oh, that they would play it though. In those days, it'd be, you know, big band music from the '40s, pop music from the '50s. Uh, I remember more the 
Burt Bacharach kind of stuff up in Thompson. Mm-hmm. That was more in the early 70s that by the time that got up to there. But, you know. <laughs> but yeah, and uh, I really didn't hear any rock and roll until I was in my teen years either. So everything was more jazz influenced mm-hmm. and popular American songbook. And, yeah. um, when did music, like I don't know if you grew up with music and music is always around you if you become passionate with it. But was there a point where you really connected with music? Yeah, when we moved to Thompson and I started going to high school, that's when I started playing saxophone. And I really, I hated playing piano. I hated the having to have the discipline to sit down and practice and right. play. It just it didn't connect with me at all. And my dad actually wanted me to play trumpet. Or no, actually, sorry, I wanted to play trumpet. But somebody had owed my father money, so they gave him an alto saxophone <laughs> instead of the money. Which he tried to get my older brother Murray to play, but Murray didn't really take to it. So then that went to me, and when I started playing saxophone, that was kind of it for me. I loved it, and all the music associated with it, because my my dad would play Count Basie and Duke Ellington and all the great bands with all the great saxophone players. And he actually took me to see Count Basie when I was 13 years old. Wow. And I saw Eddie Lockjaw Davis play for the first time, and it was just mind-blowing. So this is like an eight-hour drive to go see a concert. Yes. Wow. Yeah. But um, we, we, we went to Winnipeg quite frequently because my mother's parents were there. So we'd go, go visit the grandparents and, you know, go for a weekend. And... So what do you think it was about the saxophone that they grabbed you? The sound of it, the type of music it played, which, you know, once you kind of hear the jazz thing and the bluesy jazz sound, it kind of sticks with you. And I'll never forget with Eddie Lockjaw Davis with Count Basie, he came out to the front of the stage. They'd have one mic out front for the soloist with the big band behind him. Right. And he played on a blues, and I swear he played 30 passes on a blues, never repeated himself, blew his face off. And then when he was finished, he threw his horn up in the air, turned around and caught it, and went back and sat down with the big band. It was like, that's something when you're 13 you never forget. You know? Have you done that since? No. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm not good with the throwing of the saxophone part. Well, you can probably throw it. It's just the catching part. Yeah. <laughs> Especially from behind. Yeah. How he did that, I have no wow. idea. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, so and, I, and then also dance bands in, in the paw. My dad used to play in small dance bands, small combos. And those combos would always be drums and acoustic bass, usually piano, right. sometimes guitar, and saxophone. And did you know you were good? Like, at what point did you think, well, I'm not bad at this instrument? Uh, well, all through senior high school, I was playing in stage band and big band. And beyond that, I, had, I was playing drums in a rock band. Oh, I didn't know And that. I played drums with the choir at the school, so I was doing all these different things. And I went into music for my career at university. Right. So obviously I knew I was at a certain level by the time I went to university. But... That's a totally different level than once you become a professional musician. Right. right? And, but, but, okay, so when you decided that you were going to go to a university for music, what did you imagine that to be? Uh, really, I went in eyes wide open, not sure what to expect. The music program at University of Manitoba at the time was strictly classical. Right. So there was, uh, you know, all the classical repertoire written for saxophone, and a lot of it's extremely difficult. But once I got to Winnipeg and at university, then all of a sudden you're in Winnipeg, you're in a big city, there's all these band opportunities that are available and within the university itself. Right. The university had a stage band, big band, 
which led to playing with other bands around town. You end up joining rock bands, or you're playing in the clubs, et cetera, et cetera. And that learning experience is, that's what really makes it turns into a pro. Right. So t- tell me about actually moving to Winnipeg. I mean, it was obviously because of school, but yes. what was it like coming from a small town to a large city? Was that an adjustment or was it not an adjustment? Not so much because Winnipeg's a pretty, even though, you know, it's a city of probably 700,000 people. Yeah. But it's still got a very small town feel to it. And everybody's attitudes, you know, that's not a, a, a belittling thing either. Like, it's a very friendly environment mm-hmm. because it has that small town atmosphere to it. You know? And also very musical, too. <clears throat> Winnipeg's always had a long history of really good music. Why is that, do you think? Uh, I think because of the isolation. Mm-hmm. And it's so cold. <laughs> All we do is practice and play. Right? <laughs> but you're thinking, I'm going down south to Winnipeg. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's a little warmer than what I'm used to. Exactly. Like, I'll never forget when I'm, I was, everybody in Winnipeg played original music. Right. Like, that's what everybody did. You know, even if, if you're playing jazz, you played original. All the rock bands are playing original music. Then when I moved to Toronto in 1984, I hear about clone bands. And I, I remember saying, say, I think it was to Chuck Jackson, I went, what is a clone band? <laughs> right? Like, why would you even do that? Right? Yeah, that was, you know, that was in Toronto. That was a pretty big thing in the 80s already. So right? when you say clone band, we're talking cover bands. Yeah. yeah uh, okay. But bands specifically just playing the music of oh, one yeah, band. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Which is kind of weird because that's kind of come back in. Yeah. You know, and there's like Genesis tribute bands or Pink Floyd bands that are doing big arenas exactly yeah you know because the originals aren't there anymore but it's kind of crazy how that's kind of turned around well there's a toronto band brass transit right who are they're exceptional group of musicians i know all those guys really well and they do chicago right but chicago is still touring (laughs) and there's not enough (laughs) so it's become as you say it's become a a big thing these days but for your from your point of view that was just a really foreign concept well yeah and Coming from Winnipeg, everybody, like if you were playing original music, pop music, rock music, everybody tried to play original music. Right. And then to move here, and then all of a sudden, oh, wait a second, everybody's playing covers, right? It's kind of a, a real switch, you know? And, and then to talk about, <clears throat> for those who don't know, to talk about the history of Winnipeg music, people like the Guess Who, Neil Young, I can't think of many others, but I know there are a lot of others who come oh, from... Oh, yeah, there. like uh, when... The days I was in Winnipeg, Graham Shaw and the Sincere Serenaders, Graham, Graham, who he later moved to Winnipeg, Tim Thorny, or to Toronto, sorry, uh, Tim Thorny, who later also moved to Toronto, all these bands were playing uh, original music. Crocus, uh, Greg Lescu, who had also played with the Guess Who. There was just everybody playing original mm-hmm. music. It's kind of weird, eh? That's... So, yeah. okay, so when you went to school... Um, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to become a professional musician. And at that point, you're playing classical music in university, maybe yeah. some jazz? Yeah, I, I, jazz was my thing. But the schooling was the classical. schooling was, you know, the school itself was classical. And then you and I remember the year I started at university, they actually started a jazz history course. So I went to the first class, and I answered... <laughs> every question that the professor asked. So he pulled me over aside after the class and he said, listen, can you give me a cassette of your, a cassette in those days of your jazz band playing live and then don't come to any more classes because you know all the answers <laughs> and you're not helping any of the other students. I went, okay, sure. 
you know. Did you pass? Oh yeah. Oh, he gave me an A plus. Oh nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. At, at that same time, now you're taking classical music and you're playing for the Winnipeg Symphony. Tell yes. me about that experience. Well, that was uh, probably my first experience playing professionally in Winnipeg was with a band called Jimmy King and the Golden Boy Press. And Jimmy had actually played at my mother and father's wedding in the 50s. And Jimmy was a piano player, band leader in Winnipeg. And that's where I met most of the pro guys that I ended up playing with in Ron Paley's big band. And anything like when you got hired by the Winnipeg Symphony, it was they would hire basically a big band to supplement the orchestra oh, okay. when you were playing with somebody like Tony Bennett. Or Lionel Hampton, Sarah Vaughn. I played with all those people. And that was in the capacity as the big band with the symphony. Okay, so explain how that works. So Tony Bennett's coming into town. How much rehearsal is there ahead of time? And how much is done with him and without him? Yeah, with those kind, kind of things, uh, you get hired by the contractor for the symphony. So you go in. In those days, I was very young, probably 19 years old. So I ended up playing third alto sax with the big band. Uh, Tony would have... A musical director they would have charts for the entire symphony and the entire big band and the day of the show you go in and have a run through of the songs and sometimes without the artist right depending on who it was tony bennett he would come he came to the rehearsal mel torme came to the rehearsal sarah vaughn came to the rehearsal i think hampton did to all those people and basically, you just do a run-through in the afternoon and performance at night what did you learn from that experience and, and working with some of the greats uh, I'll never forget the passion of somebody like Sarah Vaughn. When I saw her sing, and the minute she started to sing, she would sweat, and her entire heart and soul was into everything she was doing. Even in the dress rehearsal? Uh, not so much in the afternoon, okay. but at the show, yeah. Yeah, at the show, it was uh, her heart and soul was <laughs> written all over her face and her body and her emotion. It was pretty amazing. And Lionel Hampton, was he was kind of funny because... He was such a jazzer, and he's pretty hyped up, and he's at the rehearsal, and he's at one point he turned to the whole symphony and went, okay, let's jam. <laughs> and all these symphony players are like, what? <laughs> what's jam? What do you mean jam, right? So the jazz guys, we all started playing along with them. But, yeah. All right, so this has come up a number of times with different musicians. But tell me the difference between the discipline of being a classical musician and being able to read charts immediately versus that ability to jam and some people can't do one or the other right um and i you know and then and there's something to be said for either one which is pretty amazing yeah but for somebody like yourself who can do both tell me about learning that craft of being able to read versus being able to jam and improvise. for me it was the uh, the reading part came first I was a really good sight reader by the age of when I was 10 years old. I was good really piano. Yeah, from being playing piano. But when I, you know, took the, they used to give you a test to see what level you'd end up being when you started playing saxophone or trumpet or whatever. And I remember doing the sight reading test and I got 98% or something like that. Wow. Right? So I was always a good reader. For me, it was more the later years of learning how to improvise. Learning how to use your ear is one of the hardest things to be able to do. Okay, explain that what longer. that means. Well, you hear a song on the radio that you really like, and you have to sit down with your instrument and learn that song by ear with no okay. music. Right. right. And being a horn player, a lot of gigs that we do even today, 
we'll be given a recording and myself, the sax player, I'll have to write out the sax parts on the recording, the trumpet player, write out the trumpet parts on the recording. And we have to do all that by ear. There's no music given to us. Right. Right. So that's the skill of being able to hear something and hear it fast. You know, it's very, very important. So I understand that concept, but I don't understand how that leads to improvisation and to be able to do solos and go to different places. Well, with improvisation, there's, it's sort of, you learn a ton of musical knowledge to be able to improvise, but then when you really come down to improvising it, it's what sounds good in the end, right? You can play nine million things. Right. Should I play nine million things? It's going to sound better if I play this, right? right? Right. So that's where the ear comes in. But also, like, uh, the old tradition of jazz was always an oral tradition. To be able to solo was by ear. Right. It wasn't by music. That's more a modern thing than it is from from old days. Right. Jazz was always an oral tradition passed down. Right. Which is kind of, you know, you know. To play jazz, you have to have a really good ear. But that old idea of oral tradition has kind of gone away a little bit. You know? At what point do you think I understand the art of improvisation? Or is that just an ongoing thing? That That's, I've been playing sax now for, well, since 1973. And I'm still learning. <laughs> you know? You constantly, as an improviser, learning different things. Different things come to you. Right. You're taste evolves over time you want to play you know if you're recording that's one thing if you're playing live it's another thing you know what i play in the studio i'm probably going to make sure it sounds completely correct whereas opposed to if i'm playing live i can take some liberties you know and maybe do some things i wouldn't do in the studio right you know but if i on a, any given night you you play a certain <clears throat> tune um the next night you play the same tune, the solo's never going to be the same. Yeah, I mean, there's certain there's certain things that a player has that are his style. So the solo's going to be within his style. Right. The notes aren't going to be exactly the same. But stylistically, it will be. Right? Right. So That's as you, a big difference between stylistic and... Right. But, okay, so as you're growing as a musician, at what point do you think you've developed your style or that, you know, you got to a point where you thought, well, that's a Pat Gary solo? That probably took me probably into my early 40s. Really? Where I finally went, yeah, this is me, you know? And before that was always questioning and searching and, you know. So is it a point where when you look at all your, listen to all the recordings you've worked on, there are things that you listen to and go, e, and then other things you think, wow, that's pretty good. No, actually, when I go back and listen, that it was always there. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it took the confidence of an older age to realize it. Right. You know, because I listened to some stuff where I, I recorded with Down Child in, oh, I guess it would have been in 1986, and I listen to that now, and it sounds like me there's no, there's no question about it there was no searching around like that was me and i was playing like that at that age wow yeah but because you joined in 85 right yeah 1985 yeah yeah so tell me about that move was it that um why did you move to toronto uh for the music industry for sure winnipeg's uh winnipeg at the time was a great place to be a professional music uh, to be in professional music 
Uh, I was doing Sesame Street in Winnipeg, the CBC Winnipeg Orchestra. We were re- doing recording sessions all the time. Everything was unionized. It was all union scale. It was good paying jobs. Plus, in the playing in bars in those days, there was probably 10 to 12 bars just in Winnipeg where you could play a week at a time. Right. So that was three months worth of work, and you would rotate over the you know over those three months all the different places. Right. So an amazing training ground because you're playing six nights a week, and the opportunity to learn was amazing. Right. But uh, I just had a feeling that things were going to change. The music industry was changing, technology was changing, and also after 24 years of living in Manitoba, where you're taking your life in your hands. Yeah, driving from Winnipeg to Thompson or the pie, you could die. It's so cold. Right. And uh, I packed up with my good friend Tom Jestad, and we moved here together. And Tom mm-hmm. ended up going into music theater, and he's done that ever since. And I ended up uh, playing with Downtown Blues Band after being here for a year. Did you know what you wanted to do in Toronto? And did you have connections? Actually, I, my initial plan when I came to Toronto was to come and study, was what I really wanted to do. With the idea of teaching or? Nope. Nope. Uh, <laughs> more like, you know, it was maybe I could call up Pat LaBarbera and study with Pat LaBarbera or, you know, do those kinds of things because right. those kind of players were here where they weren't in Winnipeg. Right. But then when you get to your new destination, you go, okay, now I got to make a living too. So it's sort of like whatever happens gig wise, that's kind of where you end up going. Right. So how easy was it to? get into the Toronto music scene at that point? It wasn't... I, uh, there was a drummer from California. His name was Eddie Taduri. And Eddie was living in Toronto. And he was playing with... Uh, Hawk Walsh, actually, at the time. Oh, okay. Also working with Downshell. But Eddie, before I moved to Toronto, he came out to Winnipeg and was playing in the band I was in in Winnipeg called Rocky Roulette. He came out and toured on the road with us. And he said, if you come to Toronto, I can line you up with some gigs and introduce you to some people. So through Eddie, I met a lot of, a lot of the uh, people that I've played with since 1984. I met in and around Eddie. So if you've gone to, you've been playing all your life, you go to university for classical and for jazz, um, I, and you've done a bunch of work, I presume you're at a certain level and you're pretty confident. Was there ever a time in your life where you thought, wow, they're at a different level than me? Or Well, I, that's the thing. When I moved to Toronto, I really wasn't that confident. I was always kind of, uh, down, you know, not down on myself, but always questioning my abilities and, you know, am I really that good and can I do this and can I not do that? And as you get older, you realize, well, if people are hiring you, you're obviously doing something right. But don't you think that's also part of being an artist? Is yeah, that for questioning? Sure. And... Yes, absolutely. And if you, if you don't, I think there's something missing there. Yeah. And, you know, in Winnipeg, I was... I was doing my own jazz recordings, writing my own original jazz pieces. But with Rocky Roulette, we were like a... Um, he kind of started more like a 60s cover band, but then we also morphed into a band that was doing all original material. And we'd be on the road doing that. So there was lots of varied work in Winnipeg. And the experience, as I said, of all the, being able to play six nights a week for years and years, it was an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. And so much learning going on and... That's uh, my first experiences in the studio. We're all Winnipeg, learning how what to do when you record and how to record all those kind of things. <clears throat> One of the things with Rocky Roulette, we won the 1982 Trans Canada Rock Contest. 
Right. So the prize was that we would have a 45 put out on A&M Records, and they flew Bob Ezrin and his uh, engineer Ringo to Winnipeg to record us. That was part of the deal. So Bob Ezrin and Ringo came there. It was a 24-hour window <laughs> that we had with them to start recording. We got to record two songs. They recorded and mixed it, the, the whole thing in 24 hours, and they were back to Toronto. But things like that, and it was some pretty amazing times when wow. I look back on it. Did know. anything happen with that single? They wanted to sign Rock Related to A&M, but in those days, it would be, okay, we had, we had Rocky was the main singer with two female vocalists that sang right beside him. So they were going to sign him and the girls. They didn't want to sign the band because mm. we have studio musicians to play right, in the right. band, right? And Rocky turned it down. And he went on to, his name was really Peter Jordan. And he went on to do all kinds of uh, TV shows out of Winnipeg. There was, what was that one show called that he did? It was a great show where he would do your job for the day. He'd be a brain surgeon for a day, or he'd be a garbage man for a day. Or it was a great show. I can't remember the name, but, wow. but yeah. So Peter did all kinds of CBC stuff out of Winnipeg for years, which was really good. But yeah, he he just they didn't want to sign the band, and he said, "No, I'm not doing it without the band." So by the time you moved to Toronto, you're thinking this is this is when I'm going to be a musician. Yes, definitely. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Did you ever question that? Did that? Did you ever have a time when you thought, "Wow, what what have I chosen?" No, no. Like by the time I had moved here, that was definitely what I was going to do. As I say, when I moved here, I wasn't sure what genre I was going to end up in right. or where it was going to go. Did it matter? I mean, it sounds no, there, like I jazz mean, is your love, but yeah, jazz was the love. But you know, uh, as I say, it's also you're 24 years old. I had like two thousand dollars in the bank or something, and how do I make a living and live in Toronto? So <laughs> it's basically wherever you can start working, right? right? And through Eddie, one of the first gigs I did was with Tony Flame and the Dukes. And Tony, obviously, was the lead singer for Downtown Blues Band. Right. And uh, with Eddie, I had a four-night-a-week house gig with Hawk Walsh, Donnie's brother. Another Downtown member or former member? Uh, Flame was the singer with Downtown at the time. So Hawk, was, he was on his own with his own band. But in that band was Mike Fitzpatrick on drums, Pat Rush on guitar, and Ellen Duffy on bass. Wow. Who I still work with, all three of those guys to this day. Or actually, well, Eddie first, before Mike Fitzpatrick came in. Eddie was at Manum's. So what I, by playing in that band, Donnie saw me play. Donnie Walsh from Downshall. Right. And then Donnie phoned me to play New Year's Eve of 1985, and I couldn't do it because I was booked on an Armed Forces tour with a band out of Winnipeg that had been planned for a year and something in advance. And I went over to Israel and Cyprus and Germany wow. with that band. It was like a month tour. But I said to Donnie, I'm definitely interested. You know, please contact me again. And then uh, next, the next spring, he said, I'm, that's, uh, he had kind of, kind of taken a hiatus after Jane had died. Right. And he'd be doing a four-piece band for quite a while. Him and Kenny Neal and Dennis Pinhorn and Paul Nixon. Right. So by uh, the spring of 85, he wanted to get the six-piece band going again with the horns. So that's when he phoned me, and that's when I joined Downshop. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, that's like like a year and a bit since you moved here, and mm-hmm. then you're already in Downshop, which, I mean, I would think that's a big deal. Was that a big deal? Yeah. Yeah, for being <laughs> sure it was, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, within a year and a half, I had played with Tony Flame, Hawk Walsh, and then with Ashel, with Downshop. And that, at that point, because I can't, I don't know how much they were working at that point, but I presume when he decided to come back... You guys yes, started working a lot. Starting in June of 85, then, yeah. And that's when uh, 
we worked on the album It's Been So Long. And that the first tour I did on Been So Long was a three and a half month tour. Right. We were gone. So, so that was Canada. my yeah. That was my first time of a real like with Rocky Roulette we had toured, but you know, it'd be like two weeks out west or three weeks out west, come back to Winnipeg, come out to Toronto for a week, that kind of thing. With Downtown, it was okay, you're leaving. <laughs> you're gone for three and a half months. Right. Okay, so what are you thinking? Are you thinking when you decide you want to be a musician, this is part of being a musician. Oh, Not absolutely. that it has to be, but for most. Yeah. And what did you think about the road? Uh, it was, to me, that's really what musicians did. You're on the road and you're going from city to city to city right. playing music. Right? That was a big part of it. So this is like a dream come true. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the road's... <laughs> <laughs> the road's not easy. No. That's for sure. No. Yeah. But it's definitely a part of it. And uh, that's how you grow a fan base. You know, you got to be out there playing. Right. right. But you know, this is also a band that's already established. Yes. I would be correct to say that in yeah. 86 that people knew down child they had their hits. Yeah. Absolutely. So tell me about that experience of going across Canada for three months. What did you learn from that experience? Did you like it? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> the the start of the tour was the end of January, so <laughs> the first gig was Thunder Bay. So three days in Thunder Bay with colder weather than this. Right. Then we went to Winnipeg for a week, and it was the coldest I had seen Winnipeg in years. It was like <laughs> minus forty five every day. Wow. For a week. And then we went to Verdun, Manitoba for three days, and that was the same. We actually blew up an engine on a brand new van from Toronto because we don't have block heaters here. Right. In Winnipeg, everybody, you plug in, right, or else you blow up your engine, right? So that part of the road wasn't great, but the gigs were always, you know, downtown was popular and places were always packed and, you know, always right. a good time. Right. And so now, other than Donnie, are you like the longest member? I'm the longest uh, member that continuous uh, yeah continuous because yeah. I joined in June of 85 but Gary Kendall had been in the band in the 70s right and then Gary rejoined in mid 90s I guess so what did that mean to you to be in your mid 20s coming from Winnipeg and joining downtown it was pretty cool I mean it was a, a neat thing to to be in a popular band but also what I always loved about downtown was the thing I was talking about with original music all downchild stuff, you know, they, there's the covers, there's yeah, yeah. Flip Flop and Fly, there's Caledonia, whatever, but Donnie's written how many songs? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's amazing. Chuck's written how many songs? Gary, you know, so, and especially now in the band, everybody's writing now, which is great. Right. Right. But yeah, that's probably one of the biggest draws to me with Downchild was all the songs that Donnie had written. Now, did <clears> they have, because I, I think of Downchild still, and I think of it's a band that has a show. That's not improv. I mean, it's improvised, but I mean, it's a set format. Yes, you have a set list that you follow. I presume every night you might change. Some yeah, it, like when we do a new recording or a new CD, that we're going to pick right. our material from the new CD, obviously. But you have to have the favorites in there. You're always going to do Shotgun Blues and everything. I need almost and Flip Flop and Fly. Right. right? But and I you- mean, it's also the way it's put together and the way it starts and the way it moves along. Absolutely, is is a a show as opposed to somebody saying, eh, let's do Still Blues and See or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. No. And that's always been impressive to me is when I see Downchild, it's that. Yeah. Well, that was one of the things when I first joined Downchild too, like 
on the bar circuit in Toronto, you know, everybody had to do three sets. Right. Right? 9.30 to 1, three sets, 45, 50 minutes. Right? Donnie was one of the first people to go, I don't do three sets. I do two shows. Right. And he would do two one-hour shows. Right? And he was one of the first people to establish that. Like, we're not a bar band. I'm doing two shows. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's neat that he... Well, it's uh, very important to take a stand sometimes for things like that, mm -hmm. you know, and puts you in a kind of a different level, too. Right? So, jazz to me is, is your first love. And then I can, around 2002, somewhere around there, you, you start your own jazz band. Is that correct? The jazz yeah, band. as I say, uh, in Winnipeg, I had, had been doing that in my early 20s and had written original material, right. <clears throat> recorded at CBC in Winnipeg, but I had never done my own CD. So in 2002, I got together with uh, Tom Jestad, who I moved to Toronto with. His son, Jason, had just graduated from McGill. And Jason was an, is, is <laughs> was and is an amazing uh, piano player. He's gone on now to be involved with Rick Fox with all the big shows in Toronto. He's a musical mm -hmm. director. He's going to come from away right now. So uh, Jason and I got together and we wrote tunes and I went, I'm going to put out my own CD, finally, of my original jazz tunes. So that was in, yeah, fall of 2002 that came out. Okay, so how difficult was that? Like, it, how difficult was the, is the jazz scene back then? It was, for me, it was kind of totally separate because I was playing in the blues circuit and this was my love and I just wanted to do it and I just went out and did it. Right. Right? So it was, and I kind of figured too, I was thinking, you know, if I put out a blues album, then I'm kind of competing with myself, with Downchild, right? <laughs> right, right? Like, why would I do that, you know? So I wanted to put out what I wanted to write and something of my own. So that's why we did that. And it was kind of separated from, well, what's a jazz world or what's, you know, wasn't really connected to anything. Right. It was more of my own thing. How, how is your playing <clears throat> and the approach to your playing differ different between blues and jazz? Obviously jazz, it's more complicated kind of music, more chord changes, uh, more in some ways, the, the kind of tunes that we wrote were pretty highly structured and they were hard to play. They were <laughs> not easy <laughs> tunes by any means. So it was a good challenge. It was, you know, something to rise to for myself, right. to push myself and expand on my abilities too. Right? Do you find that playing with Downchild for, like, is there that challenge playing in a blues band for many, many years? To play any music properly, I find to be a challenge. And to play different styles properly, that's where the real challenge comes in, right? Is because there is a proper way to play blues, right. you know. You don't want to play like John Coltrane when you're playing in downhill. <laughs> like it's not going to work, right? right? Yeah. So it's. Uh, I've been playing with a reggae band, a legendary Toronto reggae band called Fugitive. I've just been doing that in the last couple of years, and that's been a total hoot because that's another total different style of music is to be able to play reggae, right? Right. And how difficult was that to adjust to? Not difficult to adjust to. Just got to make sure you're doing it properly. Mm -hmm. And my friend Howard Moore, that I played, we played together in uh, my jazz group in the Vipers, 
Uh, we work with Powder Blues Band when Tom Lavin comes out east. Howard, all through the 80s, he was a major reggae guy. So when we play reggae music, often he's telling me, okay, do this, do this, phrase like this, right? So we work off of each other and we take each other's advice on the music that we know better, right? Wow. How do you decide to do the different projects that you do? The different? Projects, whether it be reggae or jazz or... It, it, that kind of all started, uh, Howard and I played together for, we were playing at the Reservoir Lounge on Wednesday nights with Bradley and the Bouncers. And we'd been working, we worked every Wednesday night for, I don't know, 10 years or more. Then we were also working with Big Rude Jake at the time, right. and all these different bands. So Howard and I really got a sound together. And then people would go, okay, well, we're looking for that kind of sound. So if it was in a jazz or blues kind of thing, you know, it might come through me. If it was a, a reggae thing, it'll come through Howard. Right. Yeah, that kind of thing. And people hearing us. Right? And then are you working on any new projects of your own right now? Nothing of my own right now. No. Just because Just, too little time? Yeah. <laughs> it's, been, it's been really busy, which is good. But, uh, yeah, just... Uh, yeah, more time than anything, I would say. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're working with so many different bands. Mm -hmm. And is it just look at your calendar and decide who I want to work with? Or, like, how does that work? That's that's more, you know, when the phone rings, you go, right? You know, in, in our business, it's, you know, it could be last minute or it could be booked months in advance. But, right. yeah, it's all based on the amount of work you have and what you can deal with at the time. You know? And the downchild is still a priority, even though yes. you guys aren't gigging as much. Well, this year's Downchild's 50th anniversary. Wow. So there's all kinds of surprises coming up. Oh, good. Which we can't announce yet. It's <laughs> <laughs> so all going to get announced next month. But 50 years is amazing yeah. when Fifth, you think about it. 50th anniversary. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How has the band changed in the time that you've played? Uh, the early years when I was in the band, it was volatile. And that was more because of the singers right. at the time. What do you mean? Oh, just what do you mean? Just because of the singers? Uh, Tony Flame, amazing singer, but erratic, erratic behavior. Hawk Walsh, one of my best friends, but Hawk also erratic behavior, and you never knew what they would do. You never knew what was going to happen that night. Who are they going to fight? <laughs> you know, was Hawk, that, was that... Hawk threw a beer ball at me one night. I mean, you just never knew, right? <laughs> Was this was this induced by something, or was it just their personality? Personalities, yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, with Hawk, Hawk's suffered manic depression, mm. but so you, you, with those guys, you never knew. You go to the gig and oh, what's going to happen tonight? Who's going to get in a fight? Like, who's going to get beaten up? It's like it was just crazy, right? So uh, yeah, so from the time I joined the band from '85 until '90, it was Tony Flame. Then it was Hawk, then it was Tony Flame, then Hawk came back, and it was five years of this. And then when Hawk quit after we had done Gone Fishing, which is 1989, I think, Donnie said, like, do you have any ideas who should, we should get as a singer? Because he said, I don't know who to get. And I, Chuck and I were roommates at the time, and I said, let's get Chuck Jackson from Cameo. And Donnie went, you think he's the right guy? I said, Chuck's going to be great, you know? So Donnie went, okay, let's do it. So... Chuck, way more level-headed, yes. <laughs> not erratic, not crazy, <laughs> and more solid than those guys were. So there was less issues, and Chuck's been there since 1990, which is 20, 
coming up to 29 years. Yeah. Right? Wow. Yeah. And then once Chuck out in the band, <clears throat> took a few years of, you know, different players and stuff that Tyler Burgess at the time was a great drummer and a great part of Downchild, but he left. So when he left, then I believe Gary had come back by then. Right. And then Gary and I sat down and went, who should we get on drums? And we went, let's get Fitzpatrick because he fits in our circle. Right? And you pick people who fit in your circle. Yeah. Right? And shortly after Chuck had joined the band, that's when Michael Fonferrer, we brought Michael in. And he's been there since 92. So the band's been really, since since Chuck came in and, you know, Chuck and Gary came back and Fonferrer was there, that's where all, everybody's been there since roughly 94. So the new kid on the block is Mike Fitzpatrick, and that was 2001 or 2002 he came in. Wow. Right? 17 years ago. Was yeah, <laughs> exactly. And what's it like to, like, you've known Mike since he first got here in 85. Yes. What's it like to play with somebody for that long, or? It's the, the connection of playing with people that you've known for a long time is amazing. It's great. Like, uh, with Chuck Jackson's band, Chuck and I met in 1984, his bass player in the All-Stars, Garth Vogan. Garth and I played together since 1984. In Downchild, Mike Fitzpatrick and I have played together since 84. Gary Kendall and I since probably 94. You know, so that's a long time playing with those guys. And the musical, Michael Fonferra, I met in Winnipeg in 1982. Right. Wow. So that's many moons ago, <laughs> right? So you develop a musical connection with people, right? And... It's funny is so many different things that I've done in my career that have taken me away from that. Mm -hmm. I keep coming back to where I started and I keep coming back to, you know, playing with Chuck and playing with Garth and playing with Carrie and playing with Fodfair and playing with Downchild. It's, you know, it's funny. It's pretty amazing. I mean, I don't know what you imagined when you went to school and, and said, I'm going to be a musician, but you know, you've played with, a symphony orchestra, you've played jazz with big bands, then you've played with one of the greatest Canadian blues bands, mm -hmm. and continue to do so. You've done your own jazz stuff. It's a pretty interesting journey you've had. It, it sure is. And uh, like Tom Lavin playing with Tom is just a blast for me. It's a total joy. How often does that happen? Uh, since he's been coming out east in the last five years, we'll, you know, we'll. Uh, some strings have been like 10 gigs in the time period or you know it's kind of weird because you, you kind of I don't know if other people think that but initially you would think that there might be some rivalry or competition between Downchild and and Powder Blues but I, I know that there isn't and that there's in, a in the old days they used to push was, that whole thing right yeah they but was the there battle, the battle of the bands yeah, right? east and yeah. west and whatever but was there yeah. ever or no, I mean, I remember meeting Tom on the road with Downchild, and him and I were I always got along and always friends, and, you know. Never what a got great to guy play with him in those days, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, to, you know, double double bill, I remember a double bill at the Commodore Ballroom in Vancouver, Downchild and Powder Blues Band, and the place was just packed to the rafters, and that dance floor is built on uh, big tires, <laughs> <laughs> so the whole dance floor moves, and it's just, it's wild. Wow. And the place was just packed, so I always great shows with him. Yeah, and another guy that uh, like with the downshell music, Donnie. I do the arranging and the fact that you know, okay, this horn should be playing the root, the three or the five or the seven or whatever. But Donnie's the guy that comes up with all the parts. And when I started working with Tom Lavin, I said, "Who wrote those horn parts?" And same deal, Tom did. Hmm. 
He said there was uh, bopping with the blues. He had help from one guy writing the horns for that. But the other things, Tom came up with those parts. Those guys wrote those tunes. Right. right? And, the, yeah. and the horns are such an important part of the music. Right? Yeah. I mean, it defines downtown yes. in some ways. Yeah. And defines power blues band, yeah. too. Yeah. Wow. And obviously the great guitar playing from both of them. So now you have this 50th anniversary coming up, mm -hmm. which you can't talk about at all. Nope. <laughs> Not till next month. <laughs> but, oh, but things are going to be announced next month. Because yes. this is probably going to go out in about four weeks or something. Yeah, so. yeah they're, they're, they're supposed to announce the whole tour in the middle of February. So. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. That's such a milestone. Yeah. And then other than that, what's, so what's the... Some dates also with Tom Lavin coming up in the summer. Um, is still, it going to be here? In, uh, in, in Ontario area. Nothing in Toronto, but yeah. And still working with Chuck Jackson and the All-Stars. We've been playing at Rockadox now for 22 years on Sunday afternoons. Jeez. Like that alone boggles my mind. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, we've been able to play one place for 22 years every Sunday afternoon. Yeah. And have the place full. And it's like... Just, that kind of boggles the mind. So if we went back 22 years to the first year that you were playing there, how different would that band sound? Probably quite a bit different then, because of different personnel. Mm. Yeah. we've uh, the, That band's morphed over the years, too. We've gone from uh, piano, bass, and drums to guitar, bass, and drums, so that's a big difference. Right. Right. In, in that way. And, and does that change the way you approach your playing? Yeah, it's uh, different tunes, too. You end up playing different material, depending on whether you have guitar or piano. Right. Yeah. And Chuck is such an amazing singer. Yes, it's, absolutely. Yeah. Tell me about him and your relationship with him. Uh, Chuck's always been, like, the idea guy. Like, even from the first time I met him, when we were, we were working at a bar called Madams in Mississauga, and I used to book all the bands there. And at the time, we were just doing, I think, bands on su Sunday night was a huge night in the 80s. Everybody came out Sunday night because it was done at 11 o'clock. Right. So you could still go to work, right? <laughs> so Sunday nights would be packed. And Wednesday nights, we used to do this big extravaganza night. That was always packed, too. So Chuck said, what's going on Tuesday night? And I went, nothing. And he said, well, why don't we talk to the owner about me bringing in my 60s band, The Marauders? Like something different, right? right? So we did that. The owner loved it. That worked. And then, how about Monday night? Me and Eugene Smith with a house bed. <laughs> so we talked to the owner. He loved that idea, too. And then out of that, that's kind of uh, the double blues band, almost. Because uh, Eugene Smith and Chuck and me and Peter Jeffrey, we were all working with the Labatt double blues band in those mm -hmm. days. So we were playing Monday nights at Madams as well. So, uh, yeah, and then... Uh, Like, Chuck's choice of material, like, he's able to sing. I mean, if he strictly wanted to do a blue show, sure. Mm -hmm. But on Sunday afternoons, we do everything from uh, Muddy Waters to Frank Sinatra to Big Joe Turner, of course, right. who's a huge influence on Chuck. Uh, Bobby Darren, <laughs> like, you know, we do. Or he'll do uh, Creedence Clearwater. Like, it's just a real broad... Is this rehearsed or is this just improvised? No, just tunes we pick to do. And, wow. And we come up with our own arrangements for them. But it crosses such a broad spectrum of music. It's actually right. a hard gig to do I'm because sure. of that. You know? It's not just strictly a blues gig. It's not strictly a uh, 
swing jazz gig. It's like all this stuff, and you have to know all these different styles to be able to play it. You know, so it's challenging that way, which is good. Um, do you miss the traveling? <clears throat> we still travel quite a bit, so. And <laughs> that's <laughs> not to miss it. Yeah, exactly. The traveling's a lot better these days. Because? Well, with Downchild being what it is now, you know, we're fairly legendary, so the treatment is always first grade. You know, right. You're flying, you're not driving, and you're staying in nice places. And in the old days, it would be, okay, everybody get in the vans. Where do we go, you know? And you didn't know what kind of hotel you'd end up staying in, or you know. Tell me about your worst experience. Worst experience. Well, a scary experience was that three and a half month tour, my first tour with Downchild. We were supposed to be gigging all the way back to Toronto, so we got to Calgary, and the agency called Donnie and said, "That's it, no more gigs." So we're going. Well, we're in Calgary. Because <laughs> so, ba- back then. Like, it wasn't like you were booked all the way through. Like, you would get bookings the week ahead or whatever. Yeah, before, or right? a month ahead or a couple yeah. weeks ahead, right? So, that was it. So, Donnie said, well, I'm flying home. And then Tony Flynn flew home and Mike McKenna flew home. So, that left me and Gene Taylor and Marty <laughs> Vickers with the van to drive back to Toronto. But we weren't in any hurry because, <laughs> you know, the next gig was about two, two weeks or a month away, right? right? So Gene and Marty and I said, okay, we'll, we'll drive back. And Donnie, you know, gave us a couple grand and said, okay, take your time and hotels and whatever, right? So we got to Winnipeg. Everything was fine, but woke up in Winnipeg, started driving towards Toronto, the worst blizzard yeah. I have ever seen in my life. And this and, is from a person from northern yeah. Winnipeg. <laughs> yes. <laughs> person from the Pa. So we got on uh, Highway 11 North to go up and around Kappa's Casing Way back to Toronto. And we got to Geraldton, and we couldn't go any further. Like, we were falling. If you couldn't get behind a semi and see the, tr- the tracks, and you couldn't see anything. Wow. So we got into Geraldton, the last room <laughs> available anywhere. And, you know, Gene and I just said, okay, let's take the room. And all three of us had to sleep in the one room because there was no place else to sleep. And it was funny. We went down into the bar of the hotel, and there was actually a band, a rock band playing there. And as we're watching the rock band, we're hearing this background singing. And we're looking up at the stage, and there's nobody singing backgrounds. It was the sound man at the board. <laughs> he was singing the background vocals from the sound booth. It was hilarious. And he sounded great singer, he said. It sounded amazing. So Gene was like, where is that money from Dottie? We're going to buy these guys around, and we're getting drunk. <laughs> I'm sure you met Gene Taylor. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So yeah, that was one of those experiences. But talk about a white knuckle drive. Wow. It was like scary, scary. It's a crazy country. Yeah. Um, Pat, I, I appreciate We've worked together a few times and I, I always enjoy talking to you. I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. So thank you for being on the show and um, we will talk again sometime soon. And I just want to add, when it was talking about original music in Winnipeg. Yes. Uh, bands at that time around Winnipeg were uh, Street Heart. Right. Um, oh, who else was that? Harlequin. There was all these huge rock bands, yeah, yeah. and all the guys that uh, that used to play with Streetheart and stuff, they they ended up in Loverboy. And there was a big everybody in Winnipeg for some reason went west, except you. I went east. Tom, Tom and I went east, but everybody else went out to Vancouver in those days because yeah. Bruce Allen was out there and the whole rock scene going on at Vancouver at the time. But there was a really strong 
rock and roll scene in Winnipeg was huge. Yeah. You know, from the Guess Who yeah, and later. Yeah, that had a lot yeah. to do with that. And one of my favorite bands was Street Art. Love those guys. Yeah, they were great. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank you. Pleasure.